Hello, this is Jane Gunn, sometimes known as the corporate peacemaker and author of How to Beat Bedlam in the Boardroom and Boredom in the Bedroom. And this podcast is about how we can gain a better understanding of some of the aspects of conflict that lead us to happier and more productive lives. Well, today I am speaking with Tremaine Dupree, and Tremaine is a behavioural economist. And she is on a mission to spread the science and the art of good decision making. She's also an author and her latest book is called Raising Thinkers, Prepare Your Child for the Journey of Life. So Tremaine, welcome. Hi Jane, thank you for having me. No, it's a real pleasure and actually um, I'm very excited to talk to you because, um, well, what I wanted to start by asking you really is, why are you so passionate about thinking and decision making? Because isn't it something we do every day? Absolutely. And because it's something we do every day, it's something we don't really think about, mm-hmm. like brushing our teeth. Yes. Yet our lives, our success in our life, professionally and personally, really comes down to the decisions that we make. And it's the quality of that thinking that goes into those decisions. So Everything really that our life culminates into eventually is as a result of our thinking. But it's Mm. not something, thinking about thinking isn't something that we necessarily grow up thinking is important. Um, We just do it. We we, we do it as something that comes naturally to us. And when things go wrong, we often don't look at our thinking process that underlined that. We simply look at the facts and the external stuff that was involved in that decision. Ah, okay. So you talk about decision making being both an art and a science. Tell me about that. Yes. So research and decision making, well, the the science of decision making goes back two and a half thousand years, all the way back to Socrates. And many parents will be familiar with Socratic thinking that some schools teach. But most adults that I deal with in the corporate world actually don't understand the foundations of critical thinking. And the, Mm. the foundations of this science come from the fact that everything that we think is filtered through frames of reference, our own frames of reference. It also proceeds from some goal or objective that we have. And if we can understand the mechanisms that underlie these two pillars of good thinking or critical thinking, then how we think and how we filter information through our own thinking tools really does help us to think more soundly and more critically and make better decisions. So it, it is an art because there, you know, it's not like maths where one plus mm. one equals two because we live in chaotic systems, not just complex systems, but systems where it's very difficult to predict. If, if I twiddle something here, what will the outcome be to this system? Mm. Therefore, if we can move as many variables of that system into a good thinking process, then we're already off to a better start than somebody who doesn't have awareness of how our thinking tools actually affect our thinking. So when you talk about frames of reference, Tremaine, what are you talking about there? What does that, what does that term mean? So a, a frame of reference is largely who we are and our position in society, how we've mm. grown up and how we think about the world. It could be our religious bent. It could be how our parents raised us. It could be our position in the corporate world. But through what lens do we filter information? If I am a, a decision maker in a company, a very senior decision maker, and I have a very big budget, I tend to want to look for big, expensive solutions to problems mm. that might not need big, expensive 
comprehensive solutions mm. because that is the frame that I'm coming with. And understanding frames, certainly when you're di having difficult conversations, as you may do in mediation, if you can start examining these frames and filters that people come with, then we start realizing that we might not be solving the right problem at all, but we are reflecting our own frames and filters onto the issue. Yes, that's interesting you say that because certainly as a mediator, I find that people come with one problem and then end up solving a completely different problem. So part of their thinking process in mediation is understanding what the problem is in the first place or what are the underlying issues even that are fueling that problem that they could actually start to think about in a different way. Absolutely. And, you know, as part of the science of decision making, we use something called a meta decision. I don't uh -huh. know if you've heard of that before, no. but it, it, is a, it is a project plan for decision making because generally when, when you ask an executive or a problem solver or a decision maker, how do they make problems? What's their first step? And I've asked thousands of people this question now and generally mm. the response I get is, well, we know what the problem is. We know what the decision we have to make is. So mm. we just we, we gather information. And people think that this is the best place to start, when yes. in fact, it isn't the best place to start. Yes. It's very much what you mentioned earlier. We start with the meta decision, and the, the first part of the meta decision is making sure that we're solving the right problem. Yeah, yeah. So yes. we look at that problem and say, well, you know, is this the correct problem to solve? And we ask a few difficult questions like, what would happen if we didn't solve this problem? So we start looking at the system within which this problem occurs and the results of not solving this problem. What would happen if we did solve this problem? Will we generate other problems or issues? Mm -hmm. And then we ask ourselves, well, what would happen if we, if we had, hang on, what would happen if we didn't solve it? What would happen if we did solve it? And what would happen if we solved a different but related problem? Ah. So, you know, we start by examining whether we're actually tackling the right problem. Yes. And only then do we have some kind of a guide as to what information we need to gather. So that's interesting. So in a mediation, uh, which is probably um, underlying uh, or the underlying thing is a, is a legal case. So a dispute, a legal dispute between two people, the thing they think they need to solve is their legal dispute. So they come to you with their legal positions, uh, which say, um, I'm right, um, party B is wrong, um, because here are the facts and here is the law and um, it's black and white. <laughs> and so, uh, and the interesting thing in that is you've got two highly trained lawyers on opposite sides of the fence, both believing um, that they and their clients are absolutely right and the others are absolutely wrong and there's no doubt about it. So, um, you know, that's where I start with a lot of the problems I'm trying to help other people to solve. Absolutely. And you know, in economics, we have the same thing because, but same thing with a different outcome, because we have a stock, let's say that somebody buys, but the only way somebody can buy it is if somebody is selling it. So the person who is selling the stock believes that he's making the best decision for himself or his clients mm. or his portfolio. Mm. And the person who's buying it believes that he's making the best decision. Yet they're both operating with the same information about the company. They have exactly the same publicly available yes. information, yes. yet they're filtering it through their thinking processes and coming out with a completely different result. Oh, yeah. And this works in economics because there is a market mechanism where we can trade. In your disputes, there isn't. No. So we have to, we have to take it one step further and work within a decision-making system, really. Yes. Um, and, and making sure that we're actually both, both solving the same dispute. So
so then I, so I think what I wanted to ask you then is as a mediator what tips can I learn from you so in other words how can I give people in that situation a framework for thinking well, there are three parts to thinking, and, and people generally look at those facts, start with those facts, and only work with the facts. But if they understand, firstly, I mean, you would have taken them through the costs of making the decision, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. costs of losing. So th- th- there is, once we understand that we're working with the facts, we're working then with the processes with which we manipulate those facts, with which yes. we think about those facts, how we solve the problem. And the third thing is we're working with the decision maker. And in the case of a mediation, you'd be working with multiple parties within that decision. Yeah, that's definitely part of the challenge, yes. (laughs) Yes. And the most important of those three aspects of decision-making is, in fact, the person. And and it's been been proven time and again in decision-making that who that person is and how they think is more important than the facts of the matter, which I have no doubt you see in many of your mediations. Yes. So if you can get people thinking about who they are as a decision maker and where their thinking originated, you know, where, what line was crossed for them that they needed to go into this mediation. Mm -hmm. Now there is something in decision making in behavioral economics, uh, a thinking bias. Uh, We work a lot with thinking biases and thinking mistakes and that is loss aversion. And through lots of research, we've come to discover that people are more afraid of making a loss than making a similar gain. So they would go out of their way to avoid a loss rather than making a gain. So if as a mediator, you can help somebody understand the impact of the loss, because everybody's going into the mediation believing that they can win. Yes. Believing that, you know, you wouldn't do it unless you thought you could win and both sides mm. are doing this. Mm. But just to get both sides to understand that if they should lose, th- this is the cost to them. It's an incredibly strong motivator of human behavior and decision making to understand losses and how that loss will impact them. Because going into the mediation, they have not necessarily thought about what happens if I lose. Um, you know, it, it's it, it's something we see in all these big political decisions that have happened yeah. uh, over this last year in the EU referendum and the, the, the American election, where people haven't really sat down and thought very long and hard about the other side. We've been mm. so wedded to our belief in what is right that we it's too uncomfortable to sit down and spend time trying to understand the other side and the very real idea that we could lose and what that loss would mean. Um, and it does change how we filter information when we think about both winning and losing it. Um, and then, you know, some other things to, to think about are when, when you're talking to somebody and trying to understand their story. Of course, you know, every time they retell a story, they, they, they recall memories, memories become unstable. You can then change and alter aspects of a memory in order to enhance the story. And this is all done at a cognitive level. You're not aware of it. But every time you bring up those emotions, they amplify, you then remember it and the memory becomes stronger. And within that, we have all sorts of thinking mistakes. We have anchoring bias, um, where somebody will anchor on one piece of information. And as they retell the story, that one piece of information becomes more and more important. Mm. And as a mediator, if you can pick out these things where people keep going back to this particular anchor that really frames their thinking, Um, And using the language of behavioral economics and say, well, you know, you you seem anchored on that piece of information. Why are you anchored on it? And could it be that that particular anchor is affecting how you see other pieces of information? Um, 
Confirmation bias is another tool that we use a lot, um, certainly when, when dealing with senior decision makers, where they've already made up their mind about something. And unconsciously, we tend to do that anyway. And then we go and we look for information that supports our belief or our conclusion. Um, if you think you are buying a car and you, you've decided you want a blue car, and then for until you get your car, you place your order, you tend to see lots and lots of blue cars. Suddenly blue cars become very available to you. And every time you see a blue car, you go, oh, yes, that's lovely. I'm so glad I ordered a blue car. But that is your mind going, I need to make sure that decision is right. So I'm going to look for lots and lots of evidence to confirm what I'm thinking. And red cars and green cars become less important. Ah, Whereas yes. I'm, yeah, certainly yeah. noticed this phenomenon in myself, I can say. And, uh, you know, anything you choose, new pair of gloves or a new hat or something. Yes, suddenly you're, you're looking for a way to say it was the right, uh, right thing to do. Absolutely. And if you can point out that thinking you're in your client's dialogue, you, you, yes. you know, if, if you know the language of behavioral economics or not, um, if you can get your clients thinking about that, you're going to come up with some much more sensible ways of thinking within the, the, the rather heated and emotional dialogue that you will have with these, these contrasting parties. Now, the interesting thing about thinking about loss aversion is the one thing that people are most afraid of losing in, uh, certainly in mediations is face, loss of face. I don't know how you deal with that. Well, you know, you can definitely use that to your advantage to get somebody to, to understand the real value of that, to actually mm. go away and do some homework and, and try and understand what it means if they do lose uh, we, we I also know it as losing face, but you know, if if they lose that kind of credibility, that's it. Yes. Um, what what does it mean? Is it really as bad as they think it is? Are are they are yes. they truly struggling to maintain face, or will other reasonable people look at the struggle they've gone through and not judge them in the way they think? Yes. You know, it, it's very true that people think about you a lot less than than what you think they do. Yeah. Um, but you know, just because again, that that is a, an emotional. Uh, response to the situation um, and that is fueled with hormones and it is is uh, fueled with again the, these emotional memories mm. and other people who are looking at your particular situation do not necessarily have the same hormones and, and, and things going on in their body so they don't have the same emotional impact or emotional way of viewing that information um, so yes, loss of faces, and certainly having lived and worked in Asia, um, that it was even in conversations, you know, and in order to be polite, you made sure that somebody else didn't lose face in what you were saying. Even if you had to tell a little white lie, mm. you made sure that, that somebody else didn't lose face. And, and it led to all sorts of misunderstandings and, you know, very interesting um, and, and harmful ways of working with people. So it, it's really about, and at the end of the day, it's about what you can live with and what you can tolerate, but also understanding it from other people's perspectives and that it may not be as dire as you see it truly. So we talked about, um, you've talked there about looking at things from other people's perspective. And again, that's something that in a mediation, um, I'm really trying to get people to do is to say, you know, this is obviously how you see the whole situation and all of these biases that you've talked about possibly come into play there so that they've uh, emphasized some elements of it but you know how do you get someone to see something from another person's perspective and uh, and have that sort of aha moment yeah the the ancient athenians um almost three thousand years ago when when law courts were, were first dabbled with 
in Athens. They solved this problem beautifully. And before you could present your case to the judges, and they had a, a, the beginnings of a jury then, you had to first plead the other person's case. So you actually had to make the other person's case as clearly as you could. And only when the jury was satisfied that you fully understood and could argue the other person's case, could you actually make your own case. Yes. Now, I find that fascinating in that it really, it's like being in a debate where you have to take a side that you don't believe in. Mm. You, you may moderate your opinion because you, you suddenly become emotionally invested in the opposite idea. Mm. Mm. And again, it's the emotional component that makes us unreasonable. Um, you know, facts are fine and, you know, facts are what we make of them, but it's those filters and frames that, and emotions that we put them through. So the, the process, you know, again, you know, if you're a, a Trump supporter and you really wanted to understand the other side or vice versa, you would have to see, and this is something we do in our decision-making process, and it's part of being a good decision-maker, where we actually have to be, A, be able to pull our own ideas apart. We have to be able to criticize our own thinking. And this is what we do when we when we coach somebody in decision making. We always we, we say as an exercise, right? How would you criticize yourself truly, uh, if you took the opposite point of view? And then again, you know, if if you were were arguing with somebody else, and you you really wanted to make the best possible decision, it's all about motives and incentives. If you mm. didn't want to make the best possible decision within that mediation, mm. this would be a step too far. It would mm. be too hard to do that to step into somebody else's shoes. Um, but encouraging maybe working one-on-one -on -one with a person before so that they understand what they will be, the, the, the information they will be exposed to within that mediation to actually get them to argue the other person's point um, is incredibly powerful. But they truly have to want to make the best possible decision within the mediation. Yes, they do. And getting people to that point can be challenging. But it is about, um, for me, about encouraging people to really listen and that true listening means um, being vulnerable and being prepared to uh, have your mind changed, not simply, Absolutely. not simply nodding your head and saying, yes, I've heard you, but yes, I've understood the information that you've given me and this is what it means. Yes. And that, you know, that, that is a classic coaching technique where mm. we parrot back and well, parrot is not the right word, but where we, yeah, really. we explain back to somebody what we think they're saying and mm. we allow them to correct our course yes. to ensure, allow them to correct our thinking to ensure that we get it. Yes. We get what they're saying. Um, but again, it comes down to incentives and motives. Do we want to do that? Um, so that really is, is the, the very first bit of work that we always do. How, how badly do you want to make a good decision here? What are the costs to you? And of course, in our adversarial system and mindsets, we actually don't sometimes want to know what the other person thinks or feels. No. And then, you know, we get surprised by outcomes because mm. we, we didn't realize you know, perhaps the depth of their argument or, or how much information they really had. Um, you know, Brexit was one of those things where, you, you were surprised by the outcome, or many people were, because you maybe never considered yes. the, the, considered it from somebody else's perspective. And if you did, it wouldn't have been so surprising at all. Yes, I agree. So but I don't want to let you go, Tremaine, without asking you briefly about your book. And because it's aimed at children, so uh, I, you, you, I think, have decided that you, we ought to catch people while they're young and teach them thinking <laughs> skills when they're at school, which is brilliant. Um, yes. Um, you know, I, I, I've been working for many years with the old dogs. 
And um, I I realized that there there isn't a uniform way that people make good decisions. People don't have a way of thinking about thinking. So I started looking at the school systems across the East and West and living in Asia at the time with very good school systems. And I I tried to understand what schools were doing um, and universities. And I found that, again, it it didn't satisfy me. There was very little in terms Mm. of a formal way of helping children make good decisions, understanding prejudice, you know, understanding terrorism, and how do small children deal with difficult concepts? And as a coach, I was able to put this all into ways that parents can use in conversations with their children, not formal sit-down training, but like little pop-up lessons as you have conversations with your children. Um, and if it helps parents, because, you know, you can't really raise a thinker if, if you're not thinking about your own thinking. So it, it's it's about getting parents thinking about their thinking and how how can they help children make better decisions when they're not around to help them when it when it really counts, especially the teenage years? And of course, really, that's what we all want for our children to be able to let them go and to know that they can survive on their own and can make good rational decisions that are appropriate for them. So I, I think that's a brilliant, um, a brilliant tool for parents. Thank you, Jane. So um, your book is called um, Raising Thinkers, Prepare Your Child for the Journey of Life. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And is it available on Amazon? It is out in Asia at the moment. We did a Christmas release in Asia and then it is coming to the UK in the spring of next year. So it'll be on Amazon UK and the US then. So we're a little ahead of it, um, but it'll be coming out soon. And if anybody listening wants to find out more about you, Tremaine, um, how would they do that or to keep up to date with uh, with your book and when it might be released? We have on TremaineDupreeze.com, very, very simple, or RaisingThinkersBook.co. Yes. Uh, there is more information. If they just Google me, uh, it all comes up. Excellent. Um, and uh, it's as usual, it's too short a time. I mean, I think I could carry on chatting for a good three hours to you. Um, but uh, we're just at the end of this conversation. So do you have one final piece of advice for our listeners, something that you'd just like them to to go away with? I, I think thinking about your thinking, mm-hmm. not not your education, not studying more. Not, those Those things are all fantastic and we need that. But actually taking time, like you would to exercise or read, just to think about the decisions that you've made and and what what was the thinking behind that. Um, And, you know, once we start to do that, uh, our own triggers, you know, things that, that make us make bad decisions, they really start popping up. And we actually start realizing how we can change our frames and filters and and change our thinking in order to make better decisions. But it's just as simple as thinking about your thinking. Oh, well, I'm certainly going to think more about my thinking and I'm certainly going to buy a copy of your book, even though my children are grown up, (laughs) Um, because I think it will inspire me uh, in dealing with my mediations as well. But Tremaine Dupre, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Uh, It's been fascinating as ever chatting to you and uh, I hope we catch up again soon. Great. Thank you, Jane. Lovely to have chatted with you. Thank you.